Hi everyone, and welcome to this special episode of Low Season Traveller Insider Guides. I'm your host, Jed Brown, founder of Low Season Traveller, and some of you may know that we're working with both the World Tourism Association for Culture and Heritage and My Travel Research on the Tourism Expert Recovery Series, in which we're trying to help the global travel and tourism industry to recover from the devastating effects of the pandemic. As a part of this relationship, we've been organising a series of tourism industry webinars where we speak to global leaders from the tourism industry and seek to learn how we can come out of this current situation with more resilience. Our fifth keynote of the series was with Stuart Spears from Silver Lining Strategy, who is the world's leading expert in sustainable events. In this episode, Stuart talks us through the six fundamentals of sustainable events and outlines why they are such an important driver for broadening seasonality, as well as engaging local populations in a sense of civic pride for their destination. Enjoy. Well, thank you very much, Jeb. Um, so uh, to get things started, um, this is uh, a, an image I thought I'd start with today, which sums up very well um, the role that events play in the Australian tourism psyche in particular. Um, it's uh, an evocative image and, and in fact doubles um, not only as a, a marketing tool, and it's, it's often images like this that our, our destination um, management organisations will use in their marketing, but also events on top of that marketing aspect drive visitation in their own right, as we can see a few people lined up against the fence there. So it, there is quite a lot of Australian content in today's um, presentation, but at the heart of that lie fundamentals that I think uh, will remain applicable um, no matter where you are uh, in the world today as you're tuning in. So looking forward to going through these fundamentals. And then at the back end of the presentation, we'll touch on um, the extent to which uh, I think the COVID situation and, and emerging from the COVID situation has influenced these fundamentals. I'm of the view that they haven't changed, but they have been influenced. So um, here we go. So just frame today's discussion um, and ensure that we're all on the same page. When we talk about events today, we're talking about public facing or business to consumer recurring events. Um, so this isn't about business events. Um, uh, this is, largely about events that are about a certain place. And so the image that you see there is from the Thailand New Year. Um, and that happens each and every year in Thailand and drives thousands and thousands of people to Thailand to enjoy that, that festival, um, Sukram. Um, the other thing I, I thought I'd just clarify is when we talk about sustainability today, we're talking primarily in terms of operational and financial sustainability. Um, Whilst environmental sustainability uh, is extremely important, and indeed the COVID situation has left us in, the situ in, in a position where it's probably taken on more importance than before, um, the, the general problems that I come across with my clients is about keeping events sustainable in an operational and a financial sense. They're generally run by volunteers, um, and as such, they don't often have the time to spend on getting their strategy and their planning right to make them operationally sustainable. So in terms of what we're talking about today, it's that operational and financial side of the sustainability equation. To perhaps just give a little bit of background, um, and I'm just gonna run through government investment in events. Um, first of all, from an Australian point of view, and then second of all, from a global point of view. 
And the reason this is, I see this as being important is not so much because this has uh, been my space essentially, is, is I started at Events New South Wales at, as, uh, from what Jed just mentioned, um, but it's a good uh, proxy for telling us the extent to which events started to play a major role in driving tourism. So uh, the first events corporation to be set up anywhere in the world um, was Events Corp Western Australia. And they were set up by the West Australian government, uh, the state government here in Australia, um, with a budget of 1.9 million Australian dollars. So probably around the $1.2 million mark in US dollar terms to attract events that broadcast images of Western Australia throughout the world. And that was a pretty clear mandate, which was speaking to the knowledge within Western Australia that they just didn't have any brand awareness as such um, as to what Western Australia was or outside of their name, obviously, <laughs> exactly where it was and what they were about. From there, a couple of years later, uh, Victoria um, over on the East Coast set up uh, the Victorian Major Events Company. And they were a little bit more specific around events that were bringing economic um, impact as well as media exposure to the table. Events New South Wales, which is where I was and started in, um, I got on board there with them in late 2008, um, mimicked to a certain extent the Victorian uh, major events company um, uh, reason for being. And it was about maximising the economic, strategic and community benefits of events. And to perhaps just give you a, a flavour of what um, that sort of statement can look like in a slightly different way is Events Tasmania. Now Tasmania, uh, for those of you that aren't fully aware of, of what their bag is down there, um, they uh, probably don't have the infrastructure that mainland Australia does. So they understand that it's maybe not so much about major events and hundreds of thousands of people travelling to get to a certain place. But what they are talking about is moving your people around, so dis dispersal of people throughout the state and getting people talking as well. So that's why those things are at a level of equal importance to the idea of attracting people there in the first place when compared to the others. Now keep in mind that timeline there. So Events Corp in, in 1989, um, Victorian Major Events Company in 1991, in a global sense, um, in Dubai, in the Emirates, we had uh, the Dubai Events and Promotions Establishment created in 1996. So quite a few years after uh, those sort of agencies appeared in Australia. And in Australia, I suppose it's it's a, a reflection of our federated model. There's quite a lot of con um, competition between our various states, and that has led to uh, that, that was a big part, played a big part in why those uh, corporations were set up as early as they were. Uh, in 2001, New Zealand created the Interagency Events Group, um, and then in uh, in Scotland, Events Scotland was set up in 2003 with a budget of two million pounds. So, to perhaps just frame a little bit further before we get to these fundamentals that uh, we're, we're talking about today, about the fundamentals of a sustainable event, I might just run through in broad terms what those objectives of government uh, investment in events generally are, and the most obvious one to us is the direct spend. So the visitation, the number of visitors, and that's in Australia, uh, Australian terms anyway, it's generally calculated by the number of visitors multiplied by the average length of stay and the average daily spend, uh, an equation that we'd, quite a lot of us would be familiar with. Um, 
organizational spend uh, is more about the amount of money that ends up flowing into an economy as a result of the event being staged there in the first place. Um, and one uh, event that comes to mind to perhaps illustrate the point um, in terms of what could happen in terms of outflow, uh, Tourism Fiji is a client of mine and they bring in the Fiji International Golf um, most years. I, I think it may well have finished the contract, but they uh, often the promoters of that event would talk about the couple of hundred people that would come and the amount of money they would spend in hotels. But what would often get put to one side is the amount of money that the federal government was putting in and it was essentially going directly back out of the country in the pockets of the players. And that net outflow essentially wasn't being accounted for. So it's very important at certain for certain events, for some more than others, that that organisational spend is in fact taken into account uh, because there may well be occasions where that organisational spend in fact outweighs any visitation benefit delivered by an event. In terms of that economic impact as well, it's important in terms for seasonality and, and events are a, a wonderful mechanism by which to fill in blank spots within, um, within occupancy rates. And so in perhaps uh, if I was to say places like Tasmania, for example, in the depths of winter, there are a range of events that bring people into Tasmania at a point in time where it is extremely cold, yet the event content is so compelling that there's thousands of people literally go down there for that. The opposite remains true um, for some of our tropical areas where it's raining most of the wet season um, and events have been created around that to ensure that the beds that are usually occupied in their dry season are also occupied in the wet season. <coughs> And dispersal, uh, delivering the spend to the parts of our community that need it most. So that can be in terms of geography. Uh, here in Australia, there, there is a, a really big push to um, drive visitation into regional areas. Um, and that dispersal can also be in terms of impacting areas with certain socioeconomics as well, depending on the community we're talking about. Uh, the second type of impact that government is looking for in, in broad terms when it comes to investing in events is marketing and strategic impact. And that will be calculated in a couple of ways. Brand alignment, um, the alignment between a brand's and events values and the values that a community prides itself on. So by way of example, that, that image that I uh, started the presentation with was very evocative and said a lot of things about a place's brand. Outback Australia and the value that that brings um, would be exponential to uh, let's say for argument's sake 100 people turned up to an event with that sort of imagery that event becomes much much more valuable than an, a generic business event for example where 100 people turn up to a conference because of that brand alignment so if you couple that brand alignment that strong brand alignment with reach and the number of people that you can get to in your target markets, then events can be a particularly powerful tool for driving marketing and strategic impact. And then the final uh, area of impact that the governments will look for when investing in events is community impact. Um, the first part of which is a, a sense of civic pride and uh, this plays an, an extraordinarily important role in these fundamentals that we'll go through in a moment. Um, the impact upon that collective pride and, um, and, and community cohesion 
um, is not only important, important for the people within it, uh, the community itself, but in terms of it being a sustainable event, um, as we all know, people will travel for unique experiences. Now, if an event can sum up what a place is about, then it will become a very, very compelling uh, tourist proposition. And so if you can get that civic pride element right, you've in fact distilled down what it is about a, a place that is unique and that will drive that, that tourism that we're talking about. So in some ways that community impact and that first element of its civic pride ends up becoming um, the driver of the economic impact that we saw first off the, off the rank there. The other, another element where a community impact can occur through events is the assets. And, and we often use, these assets are often used as the justification for investment in massive events, such as the Olympics. Um, the investment that comes in infrastructure, uh, equipment and facilities that will remain with the community after the event. Now, that also applies to very, very small events. Uh, a community I work with here for a number of years hosted a table tennis tournament. Um, in came the governing body of table tennis in Australia and left uh, 15 odd tables with the community that remain used to this day. That's something that really does need to be quantified as well, because off the back of that, communities form around the table tennis club, um, health and, and welfare uh, and health benefits come off the back of that as well. So that's often a, an element that really does need to be looked into as well when it comes to uh, assessing the impact. And then finally, upskilling. Um, local involvement in delivery of their of events uh, is a, a value, valuable opportunity for locals to um, upskill in event delivery, obviously, and uh, across the gamut of things that are required to put on an event. So not only the operations of it, but the marketing of it, um, the strate strategic and uh, planning thinking that needs to go into these things as well. So in broad terms, that, those are the three areas that government will look to drive impact um, through their investment in events. And to perhaps just take it to another level of clarification in terms of the types of events that will be invested in, there's generally in broad terms two that we're talking about. So there's a one-off event. These tend to be transactional. Um, the destination will pay an event owner for them to bring it to them. Uh, so the examples I have there, the International Champions Cup, for example, which is a, an inter-club championship um, that pits the AC Milans against the Manchester Uniteds. Um, the Victorian state government here in Victoria has bought, the, uh, bought that event in a number of years ago. And it's essentially a bit of a bread and circuses style affair, if you like, in that um, 100,000 people will fill the MCG to watch Manchester United and AC Milan play, um, and then they'll leave. Now that drives a lot of interstate and international visitation, um, but it's a bit of a sugar hit. It's, it's just there for the, it's a transactional thing in a lot of sense, in a lot of ways. So the classic return on investment that's looked for, for at least in Australian terms, is 10 to $20 of direct spend for every government uh, dollar invested. So to, to put a fine point on it, a um, million dollars going towards the owners of the International Champions Cup would be justifiable in the eyes of these governments if 10 million to $20 million of direct spend was delivered for it. Recurring events is really the area that we're looking at today when we talk about the fundamentals, the six fundamentals of sustainable events. And they're generally events that resonate 
uh, with locals and are rooted, have a quite a deep sense of place um, in, their, in their DNA. Um, as a result of that, they will deliver on brand and community impact metrics that we've just gone through before. And they will require a long-term approach in order to deliver that economic benefit. So the four events that I've got there for you, Vivid Sydney, um, for those of you not aware, has been around, I'll, I'll go through it in a little bit more detail in a moment, but that's been around for 12 years now and has gone from um, uh, a, a, a nascent event, um, obviously 12 years ago, to, to something that delivers serious economic return for the state of New South Wales here in Australia. The Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh, South by Southwest in Austin, uh, and even the Australian Open of Tennis here, uh, in, here in Melbourne, are all events that in their early days were not driving visitation at all, um, or very, very little visitation. And, and, and the lag time that it took for those events to actually drive the economic returns that they do today was a very, very long tail. Vivid was in fact a little bit of an anomaly in that within five years, it was starting to drive serious returns. So that for those events, a, a long-term approach really is required by these governments to ensure that that economic benefit is delivered. So to just go into a little bit more detail uh, about Vivid Sydney, um, for those of you not aware of it, it it's a, uh, as you, the image would indicate, a lighting festival uh, and the tagline to Vivid Sydney is in fact, light, music and ideas. Um, and it's based on the premise that in New South Wales and in Sydney in particular, there is a very, very strong creative community. And it was put in a, to a time of year at May to June uh, in winter in Sydney, where hotel occupancies were uh, typically much lower than what they were in other times of the year. And in creating the event, it was, um, the idea was that we'd fill a we'd fill a gap in the calendar essentially where we could drive visitation at a time that the industry needed it most. But to give you an indication, despite pretty serious levels of investment from the government in that first year, um, and when I say serious levels of, of investment, I do mean in, in seven figure numbers. Um, the direct spend delivered in that first year was just shy of four million Australian dollars. Now to go back to that ratio that I mentioned before of 10 to one direct spend to every dollar that, um, or 20 to one for that matter, for every dollar that government invests, the questions were asked pretty quickly upon us uh, during our time at Events New South Wales, why are we spending this much money on an event that's only driving incremental gains of, of that are much, much less than other events can do in those direct spend terms. And so it was quite a battle in those initial years to actually put metrics forward to the government to justify why we were spending that much money when we could have bought a, a, a Manchester United game in that would have driven much, much higher economic benefits. Thankfully, we had some amazing salespeople and uh, some amazing leadership on our, on our side at Events New South Wales who did successfully convince government that uh, this was something that was worth investing in for the long term. And, through to the point in 2019 where it delivered $173 million worth of direct spend to the state of New South Wales. Now, again, in year five, uh, the direct spend figure really wasn't that much in, in excess of the 4 million that the first year drove, but there were signs that it was 
there was a grassroots support level, particularly at that community point, uh, from the community point of view, which was telling us that we had something pretty special on our hands. So it really takes a little bit of gumption from governments at certain time, certain points in time to, to stay the course with investment in events like this. But if they do, the benefits can, as you'll see, as you can see there, really reap serious reward. <coughs> so onto these um, fundamentals of uh, these six fundamentals. So under underneath each of these two filters, I'll um, I'll talk through uh, three fundamentals that sit under underneath each. The first one being community connection and capacity, and I, I just alluded to it there. Some of the metrics that we saw in terms of the community um, galvanisation that happened around Vivid Sydney in those early years was really quite extraordinary and something we hadn't seen from any other event on the calendar. The second filter then is the target market appeal and the extent to which that event actually uh, puts forward a unique proposition for the target market, either to attend locally or to travel to and create that economic impact that, that we are looking to create through, through the visitation. So onto those two filters. The first filter, community connection and capacity. The alignment with the community values. In the terms of uh, Vivid Sydney, Perhaps the, the, the underpinning of it really came from a point of view where we, there was a very, very good piece of brand work done in Sydney uh, in about 2007, just before Events New South Wales was set up. And it articulated um, six brand pillars and articulated them very, very well in terms of what it meant to Sydney siders to be from Sydney. And in creating Vivid Sydney, every piece of content that was proposed to be part of it was put through the filter of those community values that we knew from that piece of brand work. And that laid the foundation for an event that really spoke to Sydney Siders. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the alignment of community values. You could substitute in a lot of ways um, the word values there for brand pillars, if you like. Event delivery capacity, the people and the infrastructure in the community has to exist for the event to be actually delivered. No point bringing in something or, or, or trying to create an event that the skills don't just don't exist for. And then support from key stakeholders. In our case, in, in, in Vivid Sydney's case, it was support from the state government and long-term support that we needed to, to prove the concept over a period of time where the growth was up on the surface value, relatively anemic. The second filter being the target market profile and appeal. Um, as we all know, as tourism specialists, um, a point of difference is critical to driving that decision for someone to buy an aeroplane ticket or jump in the car. They need to be convinced that where they're going has something that nowhere else has. So that point of difference um, is a particularly critical one in terms of particularly for driving that visitation. And then coming down to the target audience profile, um, are the people that you are bringing into the community a group of people that A, have money to spend um, to create that economic impact? And B, are they a group of people that the community is likely to get on with? Um, no point in bringing a, a bunch of uh, left-leaning greenies into a community that is has its heart and soul set on coal mining. Probably not gonna be a great mix. Um, Planning and positioning, 
once you've got that target audience profile figured out, um, planning and positioning is critically important to ensure that people can actually get there. Um, is it at a time of year um, that people can actually, those people in the target audience profile can actually travel to or, or take time to travel to the destination? And does it clash with anything else that's on locally as well, or for that matter, in peer regions around you? So look, that's enough of the, uh, perhaps the, the theoretical for the moment. What, what I'll do to perhaps put a little bit of meat and bones to that theory is take you through two case studies um, from a client of mine in Mackay in Queensland, which is, as you can see there, um, in the north uh, of, of Australia, um, a tropical uh, tropical climate, you could say. So they probably experience what would be closer to a wet season and dry season, more than four seasons. Um, and the two case studies I'll take you through today <coughs> um, are beach horse races, which is, and again, a, an, quite an amazing um, uh, image there that you can see, so so iconic. Um, and that, that doubles as marketing for the region. Um, that event was staged relatively successfully for five years. Uh, and as a result of factors we'll go through in a moment fell over, they are thankfully looking forward to potentially bringing it back for next year. Um, a fishing concept as well, which is something that I, I um, worked with quite closely with the community to create and is something that checked off against these six fundamentals, which we'll go through in a moment, was due to be launched this year, but um, will not be going ahead for obvious reasons, uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll get that back on the agenda for next year. So in the case of the Mackay Beach Horse Races, there was an alignment with community values, and a lot of that alignment with community values came from the fact that it was created by a local publican who had a larger than life um, uh, persona in the community and as a result of that he reflected the community in a lot of ways so he set it up in his own image and as a result it really aligned with who Mackay was they love to have a good time they're quite irreverent um, there's no sort of uh, airs and graces it's just get stuck in and have a good time um, when we come up to our second fundamental uh, for, for community engagement the event delivery capacity is really where it fell over in that 2017 year in that a new um, event owner came in as a result, unfortunately, of the passing of the, the founder of the event and their lack of understanding for what it was that the community saw in the event for mine was the, at the heart of why it ended up falling over. There were a lot of other reasons given. The marketing wasn't great or the operations weren't slick enough or whatever it might have been but the reality was not enough people turned up and not enough people didn't uh, they didn't turn up because the community values that were entrenched in the first few years were sort of removed in a lot of ways in that second in, in that year that that event owner took it over and that ended up leading to a, a questioning of support from key stakeholders such as the local council um, the state tourism body tourism and events Queensland and so that that essentially led to the 2017 event being the last one and uh, at, at which point they we conducted a review and have created a business plan which we hope to relaunch the event off the back of in terms of why it is a, a genuinely compelling proposition it has some serious points of difference 
every, there are other destinations that have tried to put on a beach horse racing, but Mackay is blessed with about three kilometres of very, very hard flat sand on their beaches, on one of their beaches in particular. And that is their point of difference. There isn't another destination in Australia that we're aware of that has that same asset. The target audience profile, they had it nailed. There was a lot of people traveling to it. There was a really, really strong support for local community amongst the people who were attending as well. And it was at a perfect time of year where it's 25 degrees, sunshine, very, very little rain, which was in uh, August. When it comes to the, the fishing event, we've created that event in alignment with the community's values. Um, the community itself has a higher boat ownership per capita rate of anywhere else in the country. And so there, and there's a the stock, fish stocking associations and angling clubs all over the place. So they know fishing back to front. So we know that there's the, the capacity to deliver a serious fishing event up there. Support from key stakeholders, the community and the camp by extension, the council really understand the, the importance of fishing to that community. So um, they are supportive of the event in the first place and in fact funded the concept development and testing. Um, the points of difference, we've created the event in a manner which is very different to any other fishing event that we've ever seen. And to that point, um, it's attracting, it's, it's been done in a way that will attract the target audience and has been done over an extended period of time as opposed to just a weekend to allow that flexibility in planning and positioning um, to allow people to travel and create the economic impact that the community wanted to achieve. So look, that's a fly through version of those two filters and the, fund, the six fundamentals that sit underneath um, a sustainable event. Um, what I'll just talk to now briefly before we open the, the floor up to, to questions and, and further discussion is the extent to which those six fundamentals have um, been changed or will be influenced in a post COVID world. And the first thought um, I thought I'd bring to the table on this one is an article that I actually read today about a, a, recent, um, a recent survey that was done by YouGov um, indicating that Britons wanted quality of life indicators to take priority over the economy. And that was not only, it was an overwhelming majority right now here in the midst of the crisis, but it was also a majority expressing that opinion for post COVID as well. They want, health and wellbeing outcomes to prior, be prioritised over GDP. And there's a sense here in Australia uh, amongst certain circles um, that that's the case here as well. So if we keep that as one way of framing how these six fundamentals have been influenced to, in, in our heads. <clears throat> and then this is the second one. The Unconformity is a wonderful little event that I, I've been involved with down in Tasmania in, Queen, in Queens, a little place called Queenstown. And that image you see there is the result of a copper mine that had been operating for about 120 years. They've, that, that river, the brown river that you see there is poisoned and will never come back to life. The one coming in from the side is fed from a World Heritage listed, um, World Heritage listed wilderness area that will never be touched. So, that event there and the reason that I bring it up is they are extraordinarily ahead of the curve when it comes to thinking about events. They are a place-based event, they're proudly, fiercely locally based. Their event is an arts and cultural festival 
and much of it is uh, about sculpture and and works of art tours through the countryside tours through the disused mining areas um, now that festival in 2022 is working towards a model that is a self-guided model and by extension a model that will work in a world where social distancing may well become something that's ingrained in us so I bring that to the table as well as a way to frame whether these six fundamentals have been influenced by COVID and how we emerge from it. <coughs> so to go through each, in terms of the alignment with community values, um, my, my thought on that one is that if your community, I, th I think there's going to be a bigger slice of the population concerned about environmental things coming off the back of this than there was before. Um, and as, as a result, I think it's probably a pretty safe bet to say that there's going to be far more people looking for a different way of traveling um, than what there was um, before. So to that end, I think irrelevant of the community almost, there is going to need to be a, a repositioning of the way that events are actually sold into the community and the extent to which the values that the community prides itself on are reflected in the event. I think the real question there lies as to how the messaging is going to be done differently. So whilst environmental concern might be a universal thing, the means by which it's communicated to the community feels like the point that, that how it'll be different. So how in, in an Australian context, how you communicate environmental concerns to people in Melbourne will be very different to how you frame those environmental concerns to people in Mackay. Um, where we just went through those two um, case studies. And, and I should mention Mackay is a, uh, a town that uh, a lot of its prosperity, particularly in recent years, has come off the back of coal mining. Fundamental, so event delivery capacity. Um, the extent to which the community actually has the capacity to deliver an event, um, I suppose it, it really comes back to whether the, the event or the, the community has the know-how on how to deliver the event in a more sustainable way. So is the expertise there? Um, and this is where the sustainability and the environmental sustainability might start to feed into the operational and financial sustainability that I mentioned at the top of the, the presentation. Um, and support from key stakeholders. A lot of local governments are driven by um, goals and objectives around being carbon neutral, uh, being having low environmental impacts. So the extent to which your event actually lines up with that, that broader philosophy of local government in particular will be very important in terms of supporting uh, the support you get from key stakeholders. When it comes to points of difference, I think this is in fact the fundamental that will be influenced the most. And I suspect the events that uh, can go to market with real credentials around being carbon neutral in particular, because that's the, the first cab off the rank in terms of genuine accreditation. Here in Australia, uh, we have a carbon neutral standard for events. Any events that can actually legitimately lay claim to being carbon neutral at this point in time, it's my view that they'll come out in front when we, um, when we emerge from this. Um, and that provides a point of difference to other events that provides a point of difference to other destinations. And in fact, says a lot about the destination itself. 
So for mine, in terms of how COVID's influenced this and, and where we'll find ourselves after this, that fundamental there is the one for me that will be influenced the most because it provides a point of, it provides the opportunity to provide yourself with a point of difference. The fifth fundamental, the target audience profile, that's gonna be a really interesting one. I, I'd imagine um, uh, hazarding a guess that the people that are concerned about environmental things are those that probably have a little bit more money to spend. So if you can um, put forward the environmental uh, credentials of your event, you'll probably find yourself appealing to a target market, which is pretty attractive in the first place. And then finally, when it comes to planning and positioning, my thought here is that, that there's probably not an awful lot of impact on this one as a result of COVID, with the possible exception of the idea that over-tourism is probably a little bit larger in our minds at the moment. So ensuring that the event is put on in a time where it's not going to overwhelm the community with tourists at a time they could do without them, is um, probably going to be, it was already, we were already conscious of that, but ensuring that we don't do that now will we'll just take on a little bit more importance. And then we went into the Q&A, which you can find in the next episode of this podcast series. Our huge thanks again go to Stu Spears from Silverlining Strategy for providing us with these brilliant insights this week. And the full episode can be viewed online at wtach.org. And you can register for the future episodes, which will be running throughout May on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Until then, have a great week. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay home. And don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, colleagues, and social networks. Our content will always be free for everyone, as we believe that travel is better without the crowds.